Today's episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. Podgo is providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co. That is one more time, P-O-D-G-O dot C-O, podgo dot co. The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Podcast. Trip of Wrestling. I am your host, JP John Paz, and joining me today is the godfather of wrestling conventions. He's a promoter, a photographer, a radio host, an author. He has done it all from country music to baseball to professional wrestling. He is Mr. John Arezzi. John, welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Hey, how you doing, JP? Good to be here. Awesome to finally get you on the show and talk about Matt Memories your new book. So what's been going on? I know you've been very, very busy with this awesome new book. Yeah, I mean, ECW Press, uh, you know, did a great job in uh, getting a lot of stuff set up for me for the launch of this book. And it's been a process that has taken a couple of years between getting the deal and writing it with Greg Oliver, fantastic writer, great partner in this book. And now since the uh, release date is just upon us, everything's really kicking in publicity-wise and I made a number of copies available, signed and numbered, and those are going out to everybody. So it's been a really busy time, a really good time. When you actually kind of set out for this book, did you think, like, ah, it's going to be popular, or were you kind of, like, skeptical? Ah, let's see, because it seems like it's been pretty popular so far, just from what I've heard. Yeah, it's uh, currently number one on um, the Amazon list for wrestling books, so number one is a is a good number. Uh <laughs> When you get into a a project, you don't know, uh, you know, what it's going to do. And, you know, we still really don't know. April 6th is still a little ways away, uh, but um, we're highly optimistic about it. Uh, When I went into uh, the project and and decided that I was going to pursue writing a story on my life, um, 
you don't know what the reaction is going to be. But fortunately for me, when I reached out to Michael Holmes at ECW Press uh, a couple of years ago, uh, he had ironically just got done watching the uh, one-on-one interview I did with Vince Russo after all those years. So, And he was familiar with Vince because he published one of Vince's books, I think, maybe two. Uh, and uh, so it was, it was a deal that came together pretty quickly once uh, I agreed to get a co-writer with me because uh, I would be a first-time author. Uh, and so once Greg Oliver signed on, the deal happened quick, and uh, we've been working ever since. So what was the experience like kind of reliving your life, basically, as you put together the book? Uh, there are, you know, there are good moments, uh, great uh, memories uh, from the three uh, professions that I've been in, country music, pro wrestling, and baseball, and, of course, growing up and your whole life story. But, uh, you know, you, you have to – you don't want to uh, bury anybody in the book. And, you know, of course, there are people that I've written about that, uh, uh, that uh, may not take the book um very well uh because they're uh you know the truth is the truth and when i write uh, about the people that i've had some disagreements with in the past uh you know you, you don't want people to get hurt feelings but uh then again you, know, you have to be you have to be transparent and honest so that was the most difficult thing uh the good part was just to relive the memories that i've had over the years and the experiences and the things that I was able to bring to the wrestling fans like the wrestling fan conventions back in the 90s, the Pro Wrestling Spotlight radio show, and uh, all the times that I spent with many of the legends uh, over the course of my career. Uh, It's so interesting, that convention scene, because you basically, you know, the Godfather kind of created that scene. What was that like at that point? Was it hard to get people, like, you know, to kind of buy into that? Because now they're everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I started the uh, wrestling fan conventions just based on my love for baseball, ironically. And I used to go to baseball card shows all the time and meet the legends of baseball and the amazing bets. And uh, I always wondered why there wasn't a platform like that for wrestling. And I decided to give that a shot. And initially, uh, a lot of people didn't really understand what it was. And, of course, uh, we were entering an era in those mid-'90s of um, of K-Fabe was still it was starting to break down a little bit. But, uh, for example, Ric Flair, when I uh, started negotiating with him in 1991, he, 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 had, he was very trepidatious about it. He didn't know what it was going to be. And uh, it took some convincing to kind of explain what the process was. I mean, this was a chance to you know, get up close and personal with the fans and give them the opportunity to interact with them. And once the word spread a little bit after the first convention got a little easier, and then once once Flair endorsed it in 91, uh, it was really easy after that to get uh, performers to come aboard and uh, participate. Pretty cool if you, like, kind of look back and just see the list of people at those conventions. I mean, it's a who's who, but it's absolutely crazy. Is there somebody like Bruno? Is that somebody that kind of sticks out to you? Like, wow, that's amazing. was able to get him to be a part of one of my conventions, or actually a few of them. Uh, ironically, I mean, the guy that was the most um, interesting to bring aboard because he was so deeply into K-Fabe throughout his entire career was the original Sheik. 
And when I brought him in in 1993 at the final uh, annual convention that I promoted, that was an interesting experience because uh, I went through Kevin Sullivan again, and uh, and the sheet was certainly no, just known for kayfabe, 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 and he wasn't ever getting a character, really, unless you really knew him well. Um, so that was the most interesting one, and even for me, uh, it's probably my biggest regret out of uh, all the conventions that I did because I didn't get a photo taken with him uh, because I was kind of not wanting to destroy that suspension of disbelief. So when he showed up and he was there with his wife, and even when it was time to give him his payday and I gave it to his wife, I mean, I just kind of, I didn't speak to him. You know, I didn't want to lose that mystique and, and the funniest, uh, one of the funniest stories ever was like, here we are at the hotel lobby, and there are stories about the sheik chasing people around the hotel lobby with his machete out. So, <laughs> so I mean, uh, that was kind of wild. Imagine if you were a guest coming in, not for the convention, but for just for a business meeting, and here's a, here's a guy with a turban and a machete chasing people around the lobby. So that was an interesting experience. But uh, out of all of them, the sheik, was the the most uh, interesting one for me, but certainly being able to bring together for the first time Lutez, Buddy Rogers, Ric Flair, Bruno, and, and that uh, quartet of uh, just amazing legends was uh, was was really cool for me. Yeah, it is. Wow, just thinking about that list, Oof, amazing, and that's great with the Sheik too. You know, you you see him not breaking kayfabe completely. Obviously, you know he's still chasing people on, but it's great to kind of be able to get him. I mean, that's like the rarest of the rare. Yeah, yeah. And the year before, Jushin Thunder Liger was certainly a name that the hardcore fans knew, and he had some exposure to WCW on television. But that was a name that was really hot in uh, 1992. So uh, being able to get him was another coup for me. Uh, and each year I try to make it different. Like in 92 also, I brought Bruno and Myra Zabisco together for their reunion, and uh, that was kind of cool to do. But I, I always try to put myself in the shoes of the fan. What would the fan want to see? Who would they want to meet? Who would they like to get a picture with? And so would these decisions were made based on me as a fan rather than a promoter. As far as kind of doing those shows, were they all, like, very profitable for you? It's one of those things where it was oh, they were all home runs or some of them were some misses for you? Well, I wouldn't say they were home runs by any stretch of the imagination, uh, mainly because I underpriced everything. When you can get into a convention for five bucks and get an autograph, a super ticket, you know, literally for twenty dollars to get everybody's autograph, I mean, they were they were extremely underpriced. And even though the conventions, all of them were very well attended, uh, I, I tended to overspend on the talent. I mean, I just couldn't say no to a lot of people, and uh, and so I mean, I didn't get rich from them. Uh, the flair. Uh, the Flair uh, invention, uh, that was a little bit more than break-even. Uh, I had some partners in the very first one, so I didn't even know what was taken in, so we might have made a profit, the one that we had stainless headliner. Uh, and then the last two were marginally successful, but uh, they were not uh, what you would consider grand slams. I mean, the grand slam for me was the uh, the joy that the fans had uh, attending these things and the performers who really got a chance to uh, interact with the fans, and they all kind of left. No one left with a bad feeling. That's one thing. No one left with a bad feeling. Everybody loved it. 
and those Northeast wrestling fans, I mean, they, they're the best. I mean, that's like the heart and soul of wrestling. Oh, yeah, hardcore fans all the way. And, uh, you know, uh, I was fortunate enough to have a platform like the radio show to promote these things and, and build this audience up uh, on the radio. And then it kind of transferred over to these events that I started promoting, and these fans were very, very supportive. How did you get into the radio show? How did that all come kind of come about? Well, I mean, I was wrestling fan all my life, and uh, you know, went from the Freddie Blasky fan club, fan club president at the age of four. Uh, I, I kind of um, talked my way into a press pass at Madison Square Garden in uh, mid nineteen seventy four. So, I mean, it was a lot, it was a transgression. Uh, it was a transition, rather. It was just kind of a, it was just kind of progress. And when I went off to college in nineteen seventy five in Boston, it was a communication school, radio and television. Uh, focused, and they had a college radio station there and a college television station. So I put together a little pitch for Pro Wrestling Spotlight in 1975 at college, uh, which was a, a college called Graham Junior College. That was the first college I went to in Boston and later transitioned over to Emerson College, which is a four-year uh, communication school. But the program director was a wrestling fan, and when I pitched the idea, he gave me a wrestling talk show at college. So that's where it started. And uh, and that uh, college show lasted for uh, two or three years, and then that was it. You know, I graduated, went into other things, and then when I back in, uh, when I when I went back into wrestling in 1989, uh, I was kind of like, what do I do uh, if I want to get back in? And so that's where the idea of pro wrestling spotlight on commercial radio happened. So uh, that's the way it it that was the timeline for it, and uh, the radio show lasted. Uh, from 1989 right to the beginning of 1995, uh, when I when I got out of uh, radio at that time. But of course, now I'm back with the podcast, you know, Pro Wrestling Spotlight Then and Now, uh, which airs uh, each and every week. It's a chronological uh, listen along, if you would, and highlights with me and Brian Last on the Arcadian Vanguard Network. So uh, I saved all the shows on tape. Uh, every single one of them. So uh, we have a really interesting time capsule now to go back and listen to those shows from 30 years ago. Pretty awesome. Not that you had the foresight, but it's pretty awesome that you kept those tapes just for the podcast, which is just you know, booming these days. Yeah, yeah, I kept everything, and I didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, uh, I literally um, uh, found all my archives uh, not only the tapes, but all the photographs I shot, over 10,000 pictures, uh, all the 8-millimeter films I shot as a kid at Madison Square Garden. I mean, when I sold my house in Tennessee, uh, I was just kind of unloading stuff, and I saw these boxes marked wrestling, and uh, I saw a treasure chest of stuff that I felt uh, at this time uh, with nostalgia and wrestling history uh, that it was a good time to bring this stuff back. So that's what kind of, uh, you know, started that that wheel rolling. As far as the radio show going back, are you responsible for uh, bringing Vince Russo to wrestling? Is that actually true or not true? No, that's absolutely true. Uh, I had the radio show on Long Island at WGBB, um, and uh, ironically, the uh, 14-year-old president of the Jim Cornette fan club, a kid by the name of Andrew Goldberger, um, was walking home from school one day and he saw a video store, Will the Thrill Video in Corum, Long Island. 
stopped in there and saw a bunch of wrestling videotapes and talked to the owner who was Vince Russo. And then he uh, reached out to me and he said, uh, I think this guy would be a good advertiser for your show because he's got a lot of wrestling stuff in this video store. So I reached out to Vince and called him, made an appointment, and Vince Russo started advertising his video store with me on Pro Wrestling Spotlight in the summer of 1991. Uh, then I helped him secure a honky-tonk band for personal appearance. And then before you know it, he's talking to me about uh, doing a newsletter together. He had a journalism degree from Indiana State University, and and his video stores were not doing well because coming into the area and putting all the mom and pops out of business. So he he used me kind of to get in the business because uh, uh, he, he wanted a job. Uh, he wanted to secure a future for himself after the video stores were starting to flounder, and he saw me as an opportunity to kind of get into wrestling. Uh, but that partnership really should have never been made because we had different visions. I mean, I was a journalist. I was covering hard news. I was breaking stories about scandals and covering the inside of the business and, you know, the really only radio show, the first one anyhow, to to talk about the business and tear the curtain down like I did. But Vince was more interested in the entertainment side of it, and our partnership was very short-lived. I mean, he did the advertising with me. Uh, I became partners with him. We started the newsletter. And then uh, in 1992, I mean, it really was three months into it uh, when I decided that it wasn't the right fit for me. And we had a pretty public breakup at the time. And then he went on to uh, do what he did in the wrestling business. Were you surprised he moved on to the WWF of all places? Well, I, I, I was kind of surprised. Um, I I, um, I was. I, I'm not going to you know say I wasn't. Because uh, he started a competing radio show initially, and then he uh, then he got hired by the magazine, and then before you know it, he's uh, in the he's a, one of the one of the main uh, right hand right hand men of, Vin, of Vince McMahon, uh, putting together what became the Attitude Era. So yeah, I mean, but he was always very ambitious. He was always very aggressive, or as Jimmy Cornette would say, pushy. Uh, and he uh, and and he went through me pretty fast, but. Uh, on the other side of the coin, I mean, I think I had the shortest term of an association with Rousseau in comparison to what he did in WWF, WCW, TNA, and the other projects that he got involved with. I got in and out quick because uh, it just wasn't a fit for me, and and it, and it was uh, it was it was an ugly breakup. But uh, since that point, we we kind of talked it out a couple years ago for the first time in many many years, and. And, uh, you know, he's not my best friend by any stretch of the imagination, but we have an amicable relationship today. Friendly, for the most part. Yeah, it is friendly. Yeah, definitely. When you say, you know, you're covering scandals, obviously the steroid scandal, the sex scandal, I mean, it's pretty, like you said, it's pretty much like you're kind of breaking the walls down and really kind of covering some stuff that a lot of other people weren't covering at the time. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it really started with me um, almost at the second show that I did on on commercial radio when I brought Bruno San Martino on, and he, you know, kind of, you know, uh, was talking about how uh, horrible the WWF had become in his eyes, and and uh, so that was kind of an eye opener. <clears throat> but it really wasn't until uh, I believe it was March of 1990 when uh, superstar Billy Graham uh, came on my show for an hour to talk about what steroids did to him physically. 
And that was a real eye-opener for me. And then when he said, you know, he, he thinks 90% to 95% of the wrestlers were all on steroids, that was an, that was an amazing uh, stat for me. Uh, and before too long, I mean, the, fed, the feds, uh, you know, uh, indicted and arrested Dr. George Saharian. And I was in the middle of that story. I mean, I kept, I, I kept breaking the story and, and covering uh, everything. I was at the trial of Zaharian and then, uh, had to sneak into a press conference with Vince McMahon after that trial was over when he announced the steroid policy and then Hulk Hogan lied on Arsenio and it just started mushrooming and then of course it segued into the sex scandals and, and that was a that was a really ugly time. That was a really ugly time in nineteen ninety two. With that, does the WWF or Vince McMahon say anything to you, say anything about the show? Are you on their radar? Back then, I absolutely was. It could be heard at their offices. And the things I was covering could be heard by New York media, especially a guy named Phil Muchnick at the New York Post. So he, uh, when I had some of these explosive shows, I mean, he would write about them. Uh, and McMahon certainly knew. I mean, in mid-91, after that press conference, when he first announced the steroid policy, after the Saharian trial, uh, he invited me and Dave Meltzer and Wade Keller and a couple of others to his office to kind of have a, a detente meeting, like, you know, guys, you know, we're all in this business together. Let's try to cover it, cover it uh, positively and not destroy the business that we're all in. So, uh, yeah, and, and McMahon, you know, I was on Donahue with him. So uh, uh, when we caught him in a lie on that panel, uh, you know, he if looks could kill, I certainly would be a dead man today. Uh, <laughs> but so he, 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 um, he really... Um, he really wasn't happy with what I was doing. Uh, but then again, you know, he never uh, took the opportunity, took the, took the open invitation to be on the show or anybody from the WWF to really address everything that was going on. But uh, I was kind of this thorn in his side at the time, and uh, I was somebody that just kept going on and going on. And that's why even when Russo got associated, uh, when Russo met uh, Vince, at a steroid symposium uh, right around the time we were breaking up because um, uh, the WWF did not want me at that symposium and they invited Russo to be there. It was almost like a divide and conquer type of thing. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, to say I was on his radar, absolutely. Did he, well, did you show up when he wanted you there? Because I believe Meltzer didn't go, right, to that thing that he wanted him to go to? Didn't Meltzer no-show? Were you uh, there? No, that was the symposium, I believe. Meltzer did not go to that. That's in '92 at the at the Titan Towers um, meeting with Vince. Uh, Dave was at that, but he didn't show up in '92 when they had, uh, I believe, the guy, the doctor's name. I can't remember off the top of my head, but uh, Dave did not go to that symposium in '92. It's interesting. Like he's trying to kind of Vince McMahon is trying to get everybody on his good side, but. If you're not, does he try to do anything to harm you or the show? Uh, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I certainly didn't get any cooperation in regard to guests. I mean, the only time he provided guests for me was the very first show I ever did on April 9th, 1989. He gave me Jimmy Hart, and then Bruno was on the second week, so that ended the cooperation. And when he invited me into his office um, uh, with Meltzer and Keller, uh, you know, he said... Uh, we should all kind of work together. I was like, well, you know, I would love to have Freddie Blassie on as a guest because I ran his fan club, 
And so uh, he uh, allowed Freddie to come on for a great two-hour interview. Uh, but then the cooperation stopped when uh, when uh, I was reporting on the uh, Hogan Flair finishes uh, when they started working together, when they did their first few shows out in California, because they were doing the same show, you know, the same finish. And uh, so I reported that on the show, and they said, "Well, there you go. I mean, you're you know you're ruining the business." And and then they stopped cooperating for the rest of the run of that show. Yeah, and it's funny that that match actually doesn't happen at WrestleMania that year. Diminishing returns, I guess they. As yeah, they, they boxed it. It was a box. It could have been so much larger than what happened with it. And I don't know if that was uh, you know him wanting to. Uh, not elevate Flair the way Flair needed to be elevated against Hogan. I mean, it could have been a dream WrestleMania match if they did it the right way, but they didn't, and uh, and uh, it just became another uh, you know uh, another match on the circuit. Yeah, it's crazy. Like looking back, it's like the two biggest stars of their era, and he had them at the same time, and they were leading to it, they were teasing it, they were saying the match was going to happen, and then they fade and switch. They pulled it, and you know, obviously we got yeah. two different matches. The execution wasn't there. The execution wasn't done right. Absolutely. Now, interesting, he was actually a commentator, Vince McMahon, for your first match, right? I was seeing that in the book, which is really, really cool and kind of really interesting. Yeah, I mean, Vince, uh, I had interaction with Vince uh, in the 70s. I I got to know him a little bit, um, uh, you know, basically giving him some photographs that he used for the Madison Square Garden programs. And then he asked me to travel up to uh, some arenas in Massachusetts to uh, shoot photos of some of the enhancement talent. So uh, we had a, you know, we had, not, I wouldn't say we're a friendship or anything, but um, we had a, a good working relationship. And even a radio station I worked at uh, when I graduated from college, I mean, Vince appeared as a talk show guest uh, on uh, on one of the shows, Glenn Ordway show, which was a big sports show at the time. Uh, and then, you know, when it comes to that match that I had, that, that uh, stupid decision that I made to get into the ring, Vince was the announcer. He was the guy. And uh, I'll never forget, Tano was a legendary photographer and one of my dearest friends, uh, when we showed up and, you know, I'm in the locker room and I'm changing into my gear, McMahon asked George, I didn't know Rizzi was a worker, and and George said, well, I didn't either because I didn't tell anybody. But, um, uh, you know, but it really was a situation that, um, that, you know, I wasn't good. I didn't know what I was doing. I should have never been in there. And uh, his play-by-play of that match certainly <laughs> brought that to everybody's attention that I didn't know what I was doing. And um, uh, it was a short-lived two-match career, um, and that was the end of it, you know. But uh, ironically, I go to Madison Square Garden the following month. It's uh, the night that Bobby Backlund was beating Billy Graham for the title, and I set up at ringside and take pictures like I did for years. And I get pulled from ringside and brought into the back and – there was a photo of me wrestling Chief J. Strongbow in the program at the Garden that night, and they said, "Well, you're you know you're on our TV this month. You you know you can't shoot the matches anymore. You, you know you were in the ring." So uh, I kind of jobbed myself out of a job. Wow, that's crazy. And were you actually really trained? No. Oh. <laughs> no training. Uh, absolutely none. I mean, and that's the thing. I mean, I I uh, told a white lie and. 
uh, I had asked asked the Grand Wizard Ernie Roth um, that I was interested in getting in the ring, and he thought I was crazy. And he goes, have, have you worked anywhere? I was like, uh, which really was me wrestling or, you know, doing moves with some friends at college uh, after a night of party. And, you know, that's the only training I had. And when I showed up that night, um, Girl Monsoon, who was the booker, came out and he was like, where have you worked? And I was like, down south. Um, and that's all I said. And they used me. Um, but it was a it was a silly thing for me to do. It was a little bit of a. Uh, don't know why to this day I did it, but uh, in the back of my mind, I thought it would be a good story for Ring Magazine that I was uh, working for at the time, and and I eventually wrote a story about my escapades in the ring that night. That is pretty awesome, though. Like, looking back, it's like, wow, like, first of all, you got in the ring, it's MSG, like, you're wrestling. <laughs> I mean, that's just uh, surreal to me. Yeah, it was uh, a, little, a little off the wall. <laughs> But I've done a lot of things like that in my life. I never really was afraid of anything or taking a chance, um, and and not only in wrestling but in country music and baseball and everything else that I've done. And uh, I always wanted to lead a, a life that was kind of not the norm, and uh, it's just the way my DNA is. I just never wanted to. I, I wanted to experience life and then have adventures. And you know, with this book now, uh, the adventures are now uh, documented. So I think it's an interesting read for people. Yes, absolutely. And you did wrestle Dusty Rhodes, so that's a pretty damn good accomplishment. Uh, yes, I did. And, uh, I, you know, Dusty, of course, is the ultimate professional and the consummate pro and such a brilliant man that he was. Um, and he kind of knew. I mean, but uh, in the ring that night, um, I was, you know, we were told it was going to go four minutes. Dusty was going to go over and, and I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to take a body slam. You know, in the first few seconds of the match, I get him in the corner with my partner, who was Savannah Sousa, uh, and uh, I, I, you know, I hit Dusty on top of the head, uh, which is kind of a no-no. I, I gave him a knee that was a little stiff, and then uh, he threw Sousa out of the ring, and I charged at him, and then he turned around, grabbed me by the hair, and just said, "I got to teach you a lesson." And the bionic elbow. Uh, he uh, he didn't hold back. I mean, he uh, he he really did a number on me, and I felt shock waves throughout my body uh, because um, that was a shoot, uh, you know. And he ended the match with uh, me uh, picking me up for a slam, which I didn't know how to go go with, and it was kind of dead weight. Picked me up, threw me on top of Suser, and he sits on my head to pin me. Uh, so uh, that was kind of embarrassing. Does he say anything to you in the back when you guys get to the back? Yeah, you know, he did. He was just kind of sorry about that. But, you know, you're new, you're green, and, you know, you got to be really careful in there because you could hurt somebody. And so, uh, yeah, we had a nice conversation. But then I had one more match that night. It was a tag team match, me and uh, this guy, Joe Turco, who was another really well-known enhancement guy against uh, Chief J. Strongbow and Peter Maivia. And they knew at that time, even in that second match, that I didn't know what I was doing. So they kept me outside the ring the entire match, and the whole layout of the match was me uh, outside the ring and Joe Turco trying to tag me in. And it was more of a comedy match for eight minutes. And then finally at the very end, I was told to stay out of the ring to the very end, and I was tagged in. They threw me in over the top rope. Uh, Strongbow threw me into the corner. My via gave me a headbutt. I went down, and uh, Strongbow got the one, two, three. And uh, ironically, in the third match of the night, uh, they taped three shows that evening. 
I was supposed to work one-on-one against Bobby Backlund, uh, but uh, after that second match, uh, Monsoon was like, you're done for the night. I got my payday, which was $90, and uh, I went off and uh, went on my merry way. Did you think to yourself, like, I could do this, I can get a hang of it, or you're definitely like, nah, that's no. enough for me? No, that was enough. Find out anymore. Uh, and I never really did it uh, as with aspirations of having a career in it. I just wanted to experience it. And, you know, you can experience something, let's say, at an at a indie show or something like that, but I chose to do it in the number one uh, federation in the world. And I talked my way into it. I got my head handed to me, but I did it, and I have the tapes, and I have the story, and uh, it's a great it's a great Matt memory today. Yes, it's a- absolutely amazing. And one thing people can can't say about the book is that it's boring because man, you go from the wrestling, obviously the country music, to the Mets. Uh, it's such a cool, like wild ride. Like what a life! Like you said, you, you live for these moments and you want to have a great life it's in your DNA. Pretty damn cool. So why did you le- end up leaving wrestling? Um, the first, second, or third time? <laughs> <laughs> well, any time, really. Was it like, well, did you fall out of love with the business? The first time, I mean, I really never, as a kid, when I was a photographer and a writer, and, and you know, I never really had aspirations to be a, in wrestling full-time. Uh, I really wanted to work for the New York Mets. That was kind of my dream growing up, and uh, and then I secured that in uh, 1981. Uh, but leaving wrestling the first time was really after that match. And, you know, I was no longer uh, photo- uh, photographing the matches. Uh, I did some shows here and there, but uh, I was in college. I was concentrating on building a career, and so that's when I left. And when I went into baseball and then segued into uh, artist management in the music business in the 80s, I really uh, spent uh, several years outside of wrestling. Uh, but I always watched. Uh, I watched uh, in 84 when... Uh, you know, Cindy Lauper got involved in the Rock and Wrestling Connection and WrestleMania. So I was really intrigued by it. Um, and I actually attempted to start a radio show in 1985, George Napolitano, uh, but that show lasted two weeks as the owners of the station threw us off. They didn't like the content. Uh, and then I went back into wrestling after my music company folded uh, in 1989. I was like, what am I going to do now? And I thought of the radio idea, and that's how I got into it. And that run was uh, 89 to 96, and from the radio show, convention promoter, working with uh, Ron Scola to bring AAA to uh, the United States. But I was getting burnt out. The Russo thing happened. Uh, I was promoting shows overseas. I I was really not happy. I wasn't making a lot of money. Uh, I was was being... uh, uh, abused by talent uh, on, on you know, holding me up for money. And it just became a strain, and I didn't like who I'd become. So I got out. I, I left, and I and I changed my name uh, to John Alexander, and I went into um, uh, radio advertising sales for a country station. And uh, that really lasted from 96, 97, and I got hired away by a big radio station in New York City in 1998, and then two years later, I was asked to move to Nashville to open up the offices for a television network called Great American Country, and that's where I stayed for 10 years. Uh, and then I uh, became a vice president for a record company down in Nashville, and that lasted for another three years. And uh, when I lost that job um, with a 
argument with my boss. Um, I was 56 years old in 2013 and started consulting and doing other stuff in, in music. And it really wasn't until 2018 when I sold my house, saw all these archives, and I was getting tired of the music business. I was getting older, and the artists that I was associating with were much younger, and I didn't quite gel with them uh, anymore. And ironically, in around Thanksgiving of 2018, my nephew, who had become a big wrestling fan and fascinated with Vince Russo, uh, heard him on his podcast say some disparaging things about me and my nephew let me know what was going on. He sent me the link, and I decided to reach out and kind of challenge Russo to a one-on-one -on -one conversation. At the same time, I started a Twitter account under my name, at John Arezzi, and people remembered me. So I started sharing my archives. So that's what kind of led me back into wrestling. So in a way, I got Russo into wrestling, and in the other way, he kind of got me back in because if it wasn't for that podcast, uh, and me answering him, and then people remembering me. Um, uh, and then Brian Last, uh, you know, approached me and was like, uh, I think, you know, we should do something together, especially if you got all those old radio shows. And, and then before you know it, here you go. I'm back in, and uh, now i got a book out, and uh, I have a, a, an enormous uh, treasure chest of archives that I'm still trying to figure out what to do with them. And um, And we'll see. I mean, this is where we are. And Brian is the uh, perfect guy. I mean, he's the, uh, the curator of all, like, the classic stuff. I mean, this, oh, I mean that's just great stuff he's got. And he, and he was a listener of mine back in the day. He was a 13-year-old kid listening to Pro Wrestling Spotlight radio show. So he certainly knew my history, and uh, and he's one of the brightest guys I ever met. And he is uh, his mission in life is to, is to keep wrestling history alive. And it's funny, you would think he was older. He's about my age, or just around 40. So it's like he's not really that old, but he knows all old-school stuff. It's fascinating with him. Yeah, it is. He's a fascinating guy. Very, very cool guy, and we have a great chemistry on the show. Now, as we hit the wind-down, head towards the finish, with that show, obviously, you know, all the classic stuff, is there stuff that you listen to that's like, oh, man, this is great. It's my favorite. Like when Paulie Dangerously would jump on or, or Cactus Jack, do you, like, listen back to stuff like popping your memory like oh this was the best well that's that's the best part of the podcast because i haven't listened to any of these shows in 30 years so when i upload a new show for brian and then we go over it it's kind of reliving these moments again that happened 30 years ago so i'm as surprised as everybody else when we do the show because i don't know week to week you know i see the tapes and i see the guests that are on there when i'm uploading them for our next episode but uh, there's a lot of gold there. There's a lot, and especially as we're now into 1991 on the podcast, this is the most pivotal year of the Pro Wrestling Spotlight because this is the year I did the convention with uh, uh, Flair. This is the year the scandals really broke. This is the year I met Russo. So uh, it's an amazing, uh, amazing transitional and pivotal year in the history of Pro Wrestling Spotlight. And uh, fortunately, I still have another, you know, three years of content left to go. So we're going to be doing this for a while. Any guests coming up, quote-unquote guests coming up uh, that we should be looking out for? Like that you were kind of surprised by, like, oh, wow, I forgot I interviewed him. Uh, well, I mean, there's, uh, you know, as we proceed, there's so many. I mean, it's a who's who of wrestling from the Eddie Gilberts of the world to, of course, all the appearances, Cactus and 
Paul E. Main and Jim Cornette and, you know, eventually I, you know, I have Jesse Ventura and the Ultimate Warrior and uh, I just finished an episode where Hockey Tonk Man had just left the WWF. He was still on their TV, uh, but he gave notice and he appeared on my show to talk about why he left. So these were groundbreaking interviews because no one, no performer uh, were ever allowed to talk about the inside of the business and here I am getting, you know, the inside scoop on what was really going on behind the scenes from these performers. And uh, it started with Ricky Steamboat when he left the uh, WCW uh, in 89, but then Honky was another kind of groundbreaking interview. And then, you know, when one guy does it and the second guy does it and the third guy does it, then people start seeking you out and saying, I want to get on your show and talk about what just happened. So uh, this is what uh, the listeners of the podcast have to look forward to. And I could say a name or two, but there are so many that, uh, especially now that we're hitting our stride with uh, uh, the show from 30 years ago, where it really became prominent and the audience was massive, that um, uh, that there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, amazing guests. And unfortunately, a lot of them are not here anymore. They're all gone. But uh, I had just about everybody on there that was outside of the WWF until they quit or got fired. Then they would come on my show. Pretty amazing. Was it always hard for you or easy to you to get for you to get guests? Uh, it became easier uh, as the show grew in prominence. And you know, from the uh, the bigger signal, it was a little tiny signal when I first started at WNYG and then going over to WBABAM, which became WGBBAM and had a much stronger signal. And then finally, in 1992, I go to a I go to a 50,000 watt powerhouse, uh, 1050 on the dial, uh, which was WEVD. Uh, that hit like nine or ten states. So yeah, the audience was 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 massive then. So cool, kind of looking back. And I'm curious, as far as I know you got the podcast, the other side of the spectrum, the convention, are we going to see another convention? Are we going to see Weekend of Champions? Are you ever going to kind of want to promote again? Well, I mean, uh, the days of me promoting, as far as me risking uh, capital or resources, uh, are over. You know, I've been approached to do a lot of different things, but. When it comes to Weekend of Champions, uh, I am in discussions uh, with uh, with a few people. Uh, a guy named Sonny Beach, who was a wrestler and a promoter, and he was oh, yeah, Rick. Yeah, just yeah. interviewed him. Rick yeah. Allen. Yep. Rick Allen. Yep. So I had lunch. I had lunch with him Saturday because he's been saying we got to do a convention. We should do a convention. And I was like, Yeah, I'll do a convention. It's got to be. It's got to be a reunion. It's got to be the Weekend of Champions reunion. So that's what we're planning now. You know, when it's going to happen, I don't know because of the pandemic, but we are in serious discussions. I'm going to start looking at venues actually here in New York next week. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is something that now is on the on the whiteboard, as they say. Um, I'm, I'm going to get involved in uh, promoting, um, not promoting myself personally because we'll bring partners in. And uh, I, I'm going to be, you know, the host of uh, of, of this convention. Uh, I'll do shoot interviews, um, but it'll be the same type of format as we did back in the day. And uh, I'm going to start, uh, once we get everything solidified, reaching out to people who were actually part of this convention 30 years ago and uh, see what type of um, 
what what type of excitement we can generate with uh, some really cool names that would be associated with it when the time is right to start talking about that. I mean, once it's solidified, uh, then, yeah, I mean, then we're going to go balls to the wall and uh, make it happen. Awesome. That sounds good. It's something to look forward to and get excited about. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's you know, there's a few things that are on the – you know, on the potential horizon, I mean, I've been approached uh, about the potential of uh, doing a uh, a feature film documentary on my life uh, because I literally have saved everything I've ever done. Everything's documented, whether it's wrestling archives or, or even managing Patty Loveless back in the early 80s. I mean, I, I really documented everything I've ever done, and that's photographs that's videotapes, that's films, that's audio. I mean, there's just a full gamut. I saved everything, uh, you know, and I'm not really a pack rat other than when it came to my own personal experiences and archives. So uh, when you have that type of catalog uh, and those type of archives and you've done as many crazy things time that I've done, uh, people get interested in kind of seeing that story become larger than life. So that is something that I would think would be the end chapter for me until I then sail into the sunset and uh and, and watch baseball in, in my in my sunset years. Love it. There's uh sounds would be awesome. Sounds great. And obviously so is the book, Matt Memories, My Wildlife in Pro Wrestling Country Music and with the Mets. Please give us a, a big push for this book and why everybody should definitely, definitely go out and get it. Well, it's a, it's a good read. I mean, there's a fascinating story. There's a lot of different elements. It's a roller coaster ride, uh, and it really gets uh, tears the curtain down behind some of the things that I did. And if you're a country music fan, I mean, uh, it'll be fascinating for you to hear some of these inside stories. And, of course, baseball, uh, even though it was a short run for me in baseball, I mean, but that was the one thing I did in my life that I enjoyed more than anything else. Uh, I actually wanted to call the book. I should have stayed in baseball, uh, but the, but the but the publisher uh, felt that it would be more uh, it would be better marketed to the wrestling audience because those are the those are the people that really knew me more than the other areas. So um, yeah, I mean it's a fascinating read if you want to hear about uh, Mick Foley who wrote a forward in the book or John Gibbons, the manager of the Toronto Blue Jays formerly, who wrote a forward in the book. And you want to hear stories about how I discovered uh, Kelsey Ballerini, who's the, one of the hottest country artists today. He's had six, no, six number ones, and I found her in a pizza parlor in Tennessee. Uh, you know, days with Patty Loveless on the road. And, of course, all the stories about the performers in wrestling that I dealt with uh, as a promoter, from the Jake the Snake Roberts to all the others. It's in the book. And uh, just a guy who grew up in, you know, was born in Brooklyn, New York, had kind of a rough uh, upbringing in a lot of ways. Uh, it was a struggle in life. Uh, and all the times that I've, uh, you know, hit bottom and then was resilient enough to try to try and, and reinvent myself and, you know, rise up from the ashes, that's what the, that's what the book's about. That's the story. And um, it, it's kind of inspirational in a way for people who, um, you know, you should never give up. If you want to pursue a dream, go for it and try to take – you know, don't take no for an answer, you know, and, and that's kind of what I did. And whether or not I'm crazy or not, I don't know, but I've never been fearful of anything in my life. Well, the great book. Where can everybody get the book? 
anywhere. I mean, Amazon right now, it's the number one wrestling title on Amazon.com. If someone would like a personally signed and numbered uh, edition of the book, uh, you can just send me an email, john at mattmemories.com. I have a very limited uh, number of those books, and we've sold probably 70% of them. Uh, but uh, if you want to sign the number copy, it's john at mattmemories.com. But if not, go to Amazon. Go to uh, you know any one of your major book retailers. Your brick-and-mortar stores will have them in stock on April the 6th. Walmart.com. Uh, anywhere you buy a book, you can get Matt Memories. And I know you mentioned it before, but please give all the social media plugs where everybody can kind of find you and find Pro Wrestling Spotlight then and now. Sure. Uh, on Twitter, it's simply at John Arezzi. Instagram, at John Arezzi. I have a YouTube channel. It's John Arezzi's Matt Memories. I have a couple of Facebook pages that are at, uh, it's basically Facebook.com, John Arezzi's Matt Memories. Awesome stuff and great book and obviously country music stuff and baseball is good, but I'm such a big wrestling fan. The story you know, of photography, wrestling, the radio show, you know, the podcast, everything all and the convention scene, everything all mixed together. Just what a wild ride and amazing story. So I highly recommend Matt Memories. John, thank you so much for all the time. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the two-man power trip of wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Two Man Power Trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash tmptempire to become a patron. And also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two Man Power Trip, where the power lies brother.